first question that springs to mind is, how did you become a Yankee fan in British Columbia? So I'm not from British Columbia originally. Um, I moved out here a couple of years ago to do my master's at UBC. Um, I grew up actually in the Toronto area, which then actually leads to the question of uh-huh. if you're in the Toronto area. Um, I went to my first ball game when I was six, uh, which was 2000. And it was the Yankees and the Blue Jays, because when you are two parents and you have kids that are eight and six, you're going to go to like the premier game to keep them interested and get your money's worth. Um, and the Yankees won. They won by a lot. I think this was in April or May 2000. They won like 15 to four. And when you're six, you don't really understand why your parents would choose to cheer for this team that loses a lot when they could just cheer for this team that won. Mm-hmm. And of course, once they won that first game, they go on, they win the World Series in 2000. So as a six-year-old, well, this is a great deal for me. I'm going to support the team that won. Um, and then they go to the World Series the next year. So again, like as, now as a seven-year-old, I'm wondering, like, why doesn't everybody just cheer for the team that wins all the time? This seems like a great idea. Um, and then in 2003, of course, they go to the World Series again. So, you know, you could probably call me a bandwagoner, but I've been a bandwagoner for like 20-odd years. So I guess that's the way that it goes. I'm mean, um, still very, still very invested in the Blue Jays, obviously. Um, and, you know, I don't want my parents to be sad or anything <laughs> like that. Um, but, but definitely still the Yankees are, are the, the team for sure. I don't want my parents to be sad. Might be the nicest thing I've ever heard any Yankee fan say ever. <laughs> so well done. Uh, I want I, every Boston fan's parents to be sad. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. And every Boston fan goes, yeah, fuck your parents. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and honestly, you know, jumping on from age six, I mean, that's not bandwagon. That's from like your first baseball awareness, really. So <laughs> that's really a lifetime of fandom. That's nothing to apologize for. And what I find interesting, too, is that it's kind of the exact opposite of my how my fandom developed, where uh, I got taken to my first Cubs game uh, when I was like one year old. So I don't have obviously no have no memories. of My first memories are uh, when I was five years old in 1984, which was a very dishonest year to get anybody into the Cubs like that team won 96 games. And uh, yeah, guess one of these things is not like the other of Cubs teams from the 80s. And it was that one. Uh, but I got into him, I think, at the point where I realized my dad was a huge Cub fan. And it, there was something about him rooting for the team that never won that appealed to me. Like, sure. like I signed up and I realized this is not just sports fandom. This is like epic quest now. Like, can we be the ones who are here to see it when it happens? And it took, you know, 32 years after that but uh yeah it did pay off in the best way possible but but yeah it's kind of funky that uh, you used logic and i used like this bizarre emotional narrative i constructed in my mind that uh made me miserable for the better part of three decades but you know in the end and fandom is such a silly like it's such a silly thing in general um so the team that i cheer for the most to win and the team that i cover you know for a blog is the new york yankees but like I'm, I'm fascinated by like, the Colorado Rockies as, a, as an entity. Like, they fascinate me. I watch more Rockies games than probably most Rockies fans. You, well, I don't know. I mean, like, this is, again, like, this is what I'm saying. Like, fan. Like, what is a fan, right? Like, I am captivated by this organization in a very strange way. And yet, I don't really have a rooting interest. And the only reason why I even like them is because they do stuff that, like, no other professional organization does. Um, but yeah, it's, it's such a, it's such a funny thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, to kind of uh, jump off of that, too, I just booked a flight in mid-August to Denver to go to a random Rockies Padres series because Coors Field is on the list and I got to cross it off. It's an amazing, amazing. It it might be Coors and PNC are probably my favorite parks. Awesome. Yes. I've been to PNC. It's been about 20 years. But yeah, PNC completely lived up to the hype. Uh, I hope my future husband knows that we are honeymooning in PNC Park's upper deck. He has no say in it. Sorry. Uh, Bad. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Coors Field, I, I am going to be deliberately buying tickets in the upper deck and right field for at least one of the games because I, I know about the sunsets there and I'm yeah. hoping to see one myself because yeah, that, that seems is that seems like the park's signature. Are those like baseball sky moments they put a post on their Instagram? Yeah, it's like it's a fantastic. Um so when I went, I, I saw Friday I saw Friday night game and then I saw the Sunday game. And the Friday night game, I was right behind home plate, so I didn't quite get the sunset. Um, but yeah, like the the visuals are just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and Denver, just as a city, uh, wonderful city, phenomenal. Is there is there anything you would recommend that people might might not know about Coors Field that would be interested interesting to go see? Um, hmm. Um, the, I mean, the one thing that I would probably say is like Denver every city likes to think that it is a great beer town and like some a lot of extent like a lot of cities just are because brewing is really in and it's really cheap um but like colorado specifically and at coors field there are a ton of great unique beer options and you know it's not always something that you get at major league ballparks where it's often bud and budweiser and coors and coors light um there are so many options if, if that's your kind of thing. Um, really sort of, I think there's two different two different beer gardens at Coors Field itself that sell really interesting and unique and in-season beers. So that would be the thing. It's going to be like 95 degrees. It gets really hot. That's the other thing like people don't realize about Colorado. It gets really hot. So it's going to be really hot. Cool off. Do that. Excellent. So the biggest attraction at Coors Field is every beverage but Coors. Not the baseball. <laughs> Awesome. Let's dive into uh, the Pride Nets thing in just a second after the show opened. This is the Three Strikes Are Up podcast, the Outsports Baseball podcast. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports and Baseball Prospectus and stand-up comedian off hiatus. Uh, the other voice you are hearing is a writer for Pinstripe Alley, also on the SB Nation blog network. Josh Demert is here. Josh, thank you for joining me. Good, sir. Hey, Ken. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure, man. And I wanted to have you on because last Friday night... As I was uh, headed to visit my parents for Father's Day weekend, I checked Twitter on the train and saw a couple of tweets pop up uh, coinciding with the Yankees' legacy of Pride Night that you uh, put out there. And specifically kind of how they referred to, uh, I believe you phrased it, the events of Stonewall is how the Yankees chose to, uh, the euphemism they, in particular they chose for, for that particular historic moment. Yeah, so there was a whole, I mean, there was a whole bunch of stuff the Yankees didn't do well uh, as it pertains to this. Um, and I mean, like, none of it is particularly surprising. This is an organization that is sterile, um, I think is probably the best way to put it. And it's, it's odd for a team that celebrates a really colorful history. Um, you know, Babe Ruth and, you know, barnstorming through the South in the offseason and Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra getting blitzed the night before. <laughs> World Series games, like they they celebrate that colorful element of, of their history. But when it comes to any kind of 
um, I don't like to I don't like to say social justice because that's not what it is. Any kind of sort of community engagement with that's not directed at straight white people. Mm-hmm. Um, they really don't. It, it feels like they don't put effort in. It feels like they this is a box on a list of things that they have to do every single year and they checked it. And so, um, you know, they didn't talk about it at all through the game. There was, you know, a 30 second bumper where what the Yankees do is they give out a scholarship to a graduating high school senior um, in each of the five boroughs that is uh, queer and did something in their community. And I think this is a really good idea. Um, The picture that they showed of the scholarship recipients these were people of various races and color or sorry, um, body types and seemed to be a real effort at reflecting the diversity that is the queer community in New York. That's great. I have no problem with that. I have a problem with it being 30 seconds of bumper and on the broadcast saying, talking about, uh, so at Monument Park, there's a plaque that commemorates the Stonewall riots mm-hmm. and, uh, or riots, excuse me. And, um, the, the way that it was spoken about on the broadcast, the events at Stonewall, which is kind of like saying like officer involved shooting or like it is a it is a way to, again, you know, sanitize or sterilize um, this pivotal moment in queer history and frankly, in the history of New York City broadly um, and continue to paint this idea that pride and the queer community are non-threatening uh, middle-aged, uh, one man, one man, one woman, one woman, couples who have a dog and wear polos all the time. (laughs) And that is one part of the queer community, but that's not the only part. And specific to Stonewall, you know, nobody was wearing polos when the police (laughs) raided Stonewall. (laughs) Like that was kind of the point of the bar was that it was this place where predominantly gender non-conforming and predominantly queer people of color would gather Mm -hmm. uh, because there weren't other places in the city to do that. And the reason, you know, quote unquote, the events of Stonewall happened was because the New York City Police Department has a long and I guess you would say rich history of harassing uh, communities of color and gender non-conforming communities, the exact intersection of which often was found at Stonewall. And so to not say that and, and the point that I made on Twitter is like, what was the event at Stonewall? Like, did we have a pledge drive? <laughs> you know, no, like people got arrested and people threw bricks and, you know, <sighs> queer history is incredibly uh, violent and uh, often bloody and often uh spoken about as though somebody else was doing the bad things. And this is, this happens with all marginalized communities, by the way, we talk about the civil rights movement the same way in Canada, we are uh, reconciling with our history of indigenous genocide. And we talk about it the same way as though somebody else was the one that was, you know, stealing indigenous kids from their parents. In a city like New York, a brand like the New York Yankees, to me, that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, especially when other teams do it better. Yeah. Uh, this is New York City. This is one of the best places in the world to be queer. And it is one of one of the real sort of nexuses of queer history and culture. Uh, you have to do better than that. Yeah. 
it's one of the best places to be queer because for decade upon decade, it was one of the only cities in America that you could move to and feel safe, somewhat safe being queer. And I'm, I've got to emphasize somewhat because the police, you were under constant threat of the police raiding gay bars or even just deciding to go out on random nights and bust people for cruising or turn violent if they wanted to, to just bust some heads randomly. Uh, that's, that is the true history of being LGBTQ in New York City. And I find it, uh, it's very compelling to me that, that you kind of started this, this discussion by talking about how the Yankees sanitized their own history, let alone the history of the city around them. And to me, uh, you know, being a baseball fan who observes it from a distance, and I lived in New York for nine years, so I, I went to plenty of Yankees games. And it always seems to me that the Yankees don't so much cel celebrate their history as they celebrate the nostalgia of it, that it's only hmm. the good parts. That's why they only advertise the 27 world championships on every banner. And that's why you only see the visions of like a Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle that Monument Park wants to show you. You don't see like the side where they, they had their own team riot that started in the Copacabana in the 50s that Billy Martin and Whitey Ford and Mickey Mantle uh, hmm. were a major part of. Uh, they they would just assume nobody knew about that and only paint them as these these scamps that you know stayed out till two a.m. every night because that's when men were men back in the fifties and sixties, and so I, it's it seems to me it's almost like it's the most Yankee thing possible that that they would portray Stonewall as the events at Stonewall and and say nothing else and what that reminded me of uh, have you ever heard George Carlin's euphemisms bit from I want to say like the mid eighties I'm not. Sure. I, I rewatched it on YouTube this morning to make sure I was thinking of the right thing. And yeah, it, it's about a 10 minute piece and it's utterly brilliant. And the point of it is that he kind of goes through several examples of how euphemisms and how we use that as part of our language to deaden the impact of actual events. And in, in his words, it's about removing the humanity from things that we do not want to confront emotion that are emotionally troubling. The example that he uses most prominently is he talks about uh, in World War I, the condition was known as shell shock. Two, very quick, uh, two syllables, uh, harsh sounding, got the K in it there, shell shock. And then immediately into World War II, it becomes uh, battle fatigue, already doubled the number of syllables, little removed. It takes a little more effort to say. It takes you out of it just a little bit. And then that immediately becomes post-traumatic stress disorder. And and it, it's, it's really, it's a fascinating exploration of, of how we use that language in several different ways to mm -hmm. avoid kind of getting at the, the most troubling aspects, especially to straight white um, male America. And he makes sure to emphasize that too in that bit. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's, it's the Yankees kind of playing that out in real life and, and using euphemism in that way so that we just think of Stonewall as the historical Stonewall. That's it, it's, it's a totem, it's a marker, it's a word that means, okay, important moment in gay history, now we don't think about what actually happened and we move on. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And uh, to your point about the Yankees sanitizing their own history and the nostalgia of their history, I mean, that's, yeah, this is exactly what we're talking about. And the, the, the thing that's really, really aggravating is you can tell the story of the queer community of New York and also make it happy. You know, like, I'm not saying the, the, the story, you know, queer history is often bloody and is often uncomfortable and is often ugly. It's also very beautiful. There's also a lot of 
successes and good things that queer people have done and ways in which the community has come together and been resilient in incredibly challenging times. And that is a very nuanced story. And I know that people are not going to the New York Yankees <laughs> for a college seminar on queer resiliency. I get that. But I am not a PR person. I am not even somebody with a degree in queer history. I studied economics and, you know, that's what I know. But you can make this story starting at the focal point of the riots and say, this is where we were as a city and as a community. And this is how we viewed people in the queer community. And since then, here's how far we've come. And here's how far we still need to go. Because New York is a really good city if you are white and affluent and homosexual. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the community. Yeah. But there are parts of the community that are missing out. And through our scholarships, this is what we're trying. This is one of the things that we are trying to do better with. And again, I am not a PR person. And I've had background conversations with people who work for the Yankees who are PR people. And they don't see it that way. Hmm. They see it as we need to get this off the calendar. Uh, were two years ago when I when they first had the Pride Night, and I believe that's how you and I met. Um, it was they literally were dragging their feet. They were the last team to not do it. That is the way this organization views this. That's the way this organization views the community. Queer people are, you know, do what do what you feel is right with that information. That is, they they do not care about the nuance or care about executing it at a high level. And that's extraordinarily disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we know that the Yankees definitely, even within the, the insular world of baseball, they exist in kind of their own, especially insular sub realm where it's, it's Yankees and then all other teams. So what would it take, do you think, to kind of puncture that and to get them to view us as something other than just a box to check? Yeah. I mean, hey, call me. <laughs> Yankees, I will, I will happily consult, probably charge you less than whatever consulting firm is doing your promotional schedule now. Give me a call. I'm available. Um, yeah, what I'm hopeful for is that I, it felt like this year, a lot of organizations that did Pride Night stepped up the way that they talk about Pride. So um, again, the example that I used on Twitter was the Oakland A's who spent the entire night commemorating Elijah Burke, which is this incredible story that most people don't know um and goes through the you know it, it is sort of the struggle to be queer you know in one lifetime and the a's and other clubs had not done a very good job of telling that story and they said to themselves hey we can do better than this i don't know how that decision was reached i don't i don't know um but they said we can we can do this better than we've done it before. Mm -hmm. The Kansas City Royals, who play in Kansas City, yes. and whose um, their GM is like like Dayton Moore, oh, God. A, a, a strange guy. Yeah, <laughs> Dayton Moore's a strange guy. We'll leave it at that. They donate their ticket sales to queer homeless shelters. Other teams let players wear rainbow stuff on the field. Like that's my hope is that the Yankees hold their nose in the air over a lot of things. I'm hopeful um, 
Although even that, even if that's not a realistic hope that um, they look around the league and they see that other teams have done this better. And again, being New York city and projecting the image that they want to project as the representatives of the city. Nobody thinks about the Mets as representing New York. Sorry. No one does. <laughs> they think about the Yankees representing New York. All these other teams are doing this better than you. You represent one of the focal communities to be queer in the world. Can we do better? Yeah. I think that they can. Yeah. And it's interesting that, that you bring up the Oakland A's uh, re, uh, renaming their Pride Night after Glenn Burke and make, turning it into. Glenn, oh my. Yeah. No worries. I, Man. I, I, I did, you were on can a roll. Can we do that whole question over again so that <laughs> I can. A lot of this is a wrestler, right? Uh, God, I don't even know. God. <laughs> oh my God. You were rolling. I didn't want to interrupt. So I, that's I, awful. Yeah. That's so bad. Oh, no worries. So, and, and uh, uh, I bring that up only because it, the Bay Area as a whole crushed Pride Nights this year. Like it, it yeah. was the Oakland A's honoring Burke, uh, which by the way is also kind of an organizational are bad too, because during the time he played, Glenn Burke's year and a half with Oakland was essentially him brawling with homophobes in the parking lot getting called an F-bomb by Billy Martin and getting marginalized in the minor leagues. So, Hey, Billy Martin. Guy yeah. Lionized by the New York Yankees. Interesting. Yeah. That happened. And, anyway, uh, continue. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, and their neighbors across the Bay, the San Francisco giants became the first team in MLB this year on their pride day to take the field in rainbow insignia with the rainbow mm-hmm. SF, both on their arm patch and on their cap. And the cap has been donated to the hall of fame too, since then. So it's going to Cooperstown, not exactly the area that is a bastion of, you know, like Brooklyn or the village or Chelsea necessarily. So I, I kind of wonder that, uh, that you talk about how the rest of baseball kind of shaming the Yankees into stepping up, that if other teams start making it that visible, especially on their celebration of pride, eventually that might light, uh, light a fire under the Yankees to see, Hey, you know, everybody else is doing this and, getting credit for it. And we know there's one thing the Yankees want. It's credit all the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So maybe if it catches on elsewhere in baseball like that, and it is that visible that that might eventually change things. It might again, like um, it is perhaps like the truest queer experience is like hope for the future yet. Like being very guarded about that hope. Yep. Um, and that's very much how I feel. About, by the way, about the Yankees getting better. Welcome to Cub fandom. Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Hope for the future and expecting the worst. That is the first 35 years of my life. Yeah. But uh, yeah. And uh, one more thing on this, and I think then we'll move on to uh, the current team. Um, and it's kind of off what you said about Billy Martin. And I'm, I'm kind of curious too, that the Yankees do hold Billy Martin in an exalted place in their franchise. They've retired his number. I believe he's got a plaque in Monument Park. Is that right? And I know that the Dodgers are also hesitant to honor Glenn Burke, even though they are very much like one of the biggest LGBTQ supporting franchises in the game. And my theory and one of our co-founders theories is that it's because Tommy Lasorda played such a role in their organization. They don't want to do honor somebody that might be seen as a shot at Tommy. So I kind of think with the Yankees, if they were to perhaps reach out to the community, would that be seen as a slap to Billy Martin or conversely also because the Yankees are one of pretty much every other team in baseball that, you know, is slavish in honoring the law enforcement community. 
Do they think that if they actually told too much of the Stonewall story that that they would view it as, well, how can we honor cops if we actually talk about the reality of them abusing an entire community for decades? Yeah, so that's interesting. There's a couple points in there. Before I get to those points, I would like to say Elijah Burke is a professional wrestler. Okay. So my apologies to Elijah Burke and also my apologies to Glenn Burke for getting it wrong. I'm sorry. It's been a very long day, very <laughs> hot outside, Freudian slip. Uh, I apologize. Um, yeah, so to this point, um, I don't particularly care if they think that it's a slight on Billy Martin. And right. I don't care because I don't think that Billy Martin was unique in his treatment of queer people. Um, and I think that, and by the way, like, I don't... It's difficult to say, well, that was the time. I, I, that's, a, that's an excuse. It's a weak excuse. I don't like it. Um, but... I don't, I don't believe in, oh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of how I feel about this while I'm on this podcast. Um, it, is, it is not wrong to hold Billy Martin accountable for the things that he said. It is wrong to believe that Billy Martin was alone in saying that. And so if we don't talk about queer history because it's a slap in the face to Billy Martin, we're not going to be talking about anything because the Yankees have a very complicated history with race mm -hmm. that uh, we can't talk about because of certain figures in the Yankees past. I don't care about that. I don't care. Um, I think that the point about the relationship with, with police is, is much more poignant. And I think I would tend to agree with you probably plays a bigger role in these decisions than, uh, than just about anything else in that it's really hard to talk about um, serial harassment by law enforcement and then honor a cop at every single game. Yeah. Um, and by the way, the Yankees ran into this problem last year when Aaron Hicks was kneeling and Giancarlo Stanton was kneeling. And, you know, I think that the players handled it about as well as they could hope. I, I do think that culturally, when you come to the Yankees, there is an expectation that you don't do that kind of stuff. Um, that I think that some of these players were, were they on another team or brought up in a different organization would behave differently. Um, and then I think, you know, uh, but, but for, as far as an organization went, it was very like, they didn't talk about it. Like there was no, there were no consequences. And I truly believe that there were no consequences for Aaron Hicks and Giancarlo Stanton, uh, but it wasn't something that they talked about. Why? Because they have this incredibly involved relationship with an incredibly powerful, uh, oppressive institution. Yeah. And yeah, I do think that that probably plays a, a, a non-insignificant role in the way that stories of pride specifically are told. Um, same way that a lot of queer communities have had to grapple, well, not so much queer communities, but sort of pride organizers, I guess, mm -hmm. have had to grapple with this over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. One of my really indelible moments of Pride was at the Toronto Pride Parade 2016 or 2017 when Black Lives Matter actually stopped the parade and mm. said, we don't want cops at Pride. And it was this moment of, you know, being a young queer person and being, it wasn't my first Pride, but it was one of my first Prides. And um, being in, you know, Toronto, I think is probably the best city in the world to be gay. And having to confront that part of my experience as well as someone that, that hadn't had uh this relationship with the police. Um, I think that the Yankees are due for that kind of conversation with themselves, but they don't want to have it for 
a bunch of reasons. No, it's, uh, I mean, it's, and I, I think that's using, again, your example of Stanton and Aaron Hicks, that it's in some ways an especially brave act for them to take a knee while representing the New York Yankees, because it's very hard to force an organization to confront the realities of systemic racism throughout the entire country's history when they can't even confront beards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it shouldn't be a surprise to people that the two guys that did that were two guys who had long-term deals. Yeah. Aaron Hicks has a seven-year contract. John Carlson has like a 78-year contract. So, <laughs> and like, again, like we, we're, we start to talk about these things and all these different ways that these things intersect. If you're a rookie or you're in a contract year, I don't, the decision to not tender you a contract will not be that you sat or that you kneeled to the national anthem, but it is pressure to behave in a way that the organization approves of. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Stanton and Hicks didn't have that. And I think partially it's a factor, uh, a function of their contract status. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean that, yeah, this is an organization where they, they really push the concept of you have to earn your pinstripes and you have to have your mm -hmm. Yankee moment just on the field, let alone for believing what you believe off the field. So yeah, yeah it's very easy for me to see that. Uh, I do want to end the podcast on a little bit of a lighter note. Uh, and I don't know, does talking about the current Yankee team count as a lighter note at this point? They won today. So for the next like 12 hours. We're yeah, <laughs> satisfied until note. the next game. Uh, that works for me. Uh, yeah, it is, as we talked about right before we started recording, it's a hard team to get your head around, isn't it? Because they have the superstars and the superstars are performing at superstar level. And yet it is an immensely frustrating team to watch when you kind of expect a, a Yankee team to perform around the superstars the way they have in the past. And uh, I guess I'll start with, uh, who do you think the Yanks need to bounce back more uh, DJ LeMayhew or Glaber Torres in order to actually contend in the second half? Um, hmm. I would probably say Glaber Torres because I think that he is furthest away from true talent level than DJ LeMayhew is. I think that try not to be a wet blanket about things, <laughs> but I do not think it is unreasonable that DJ LeMahieu is perhaps not an MVP caliber hitter every single year, especially as, especially as he gets older. And by the way, I think that's baked into the contract. The contract that he signed pays him $15 million a year. That's not really MVP numbers. Right. He had a great 60-game season. And season before that, and all of his time in Colorado, he was a perfectly acceptable Major League Baseball player, but he was nothing special. Don't care about buying pedal. I don't care about it. Other people can. That's fine. That's who he was. And he got off to a very slow start. Um, there's some things in his batting profile that I'm not a huge fan of. Um, I do think that at certain points in the year, he almost gets contact happy where he goes up just trying to put a ball in play. And despite what a lot of people think, I don't actually think that's an optimum. Your goal is not to put the ball in play. Your goal is to put the ball in play hard on a pitch that you can drive. I'm not sure that DJ LeMahieu always does that. Libertores, on the other hand, is a mess. And is a mess in ways that are extremely concerning for a player that is 24 years old. 
Um, his stack-ass numbers should terrify you. His average exit velocity, hard hit rate, all of this is way down. And so he hit 38 home runs in 2019, and a lot of people have said that he's a factor of the juice ball and yada, yada, yada. And that's fine, sure. Okay, he's probably not going to hit 38 home runs in a full season, but he should hit more than nine. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's some mechanical issues with his swing. I don't particularly like the he's trying to hit a home run every single pitch take because I, I don't, none of us know what Flavor Torres is thinking when he's going up to the plate. Um, yeah. He, he is the one that I think is the most unlike his best version of himself. And he's also a shortstop. And, you know, DJ, even if the bat is not there, plays good defense, um, doesn't do some of the things that Glaber Torres does on the bases that are also really strange. Hmm. Um, like just tonight, he was tagged out. Uh, he was on first base, forced to second and was tagged out. And like the golden rule, when you are a base runner forced to go to second is you make them make the play at the bag. You do not get tagged out. You slide, you back up, you do something to disrupt it. You don't get tagged out. So yeah, it's Glaber Torres, I think is more of a mess than, than DJ is. I just don't, I, I think that DJ isn't as good of a, of a player as he maybe was in 2020. Glaber Torres is, is far removed from the kind of player he should be. Yeah. If I may make a suggestion to Mr. Torres, maybe take a piece from Javi Baez's book and just yeah. randomly run back to the plate and see what happens. Cause that's fun. <laughs> Every so often it turns out magic. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, like even just like last night, I think Manny Machado like slit, got caught in that exact, exact same position and slid so that he makes like, you got to make the fielder do something. In right. That position. Otherwise. Yeah. Right. Like, whatever. Yeah. Manny Machado either slides or sweeps the leg and either way it's fun to watch. I, I do want to make somewhat of an argument for DJ LeMayhew um, just because the way that I view this, and I'm, I'm viewing it from afar, so I, I don't watch the Yankees every day, obviously, but um, the way I see it is that the skill set he brings when he's at his best is so markedly different from just about everybody else in that lineup mm-hmm. that it really forces pitchers to change their approach in the middle of going through that one through nine and have to deal with someone who is liable to make solid contact anywhere in the zone and also is impossible to shift against. And uh, there, uh, I mean, it, it's only anecdotal at this point, but even using like the, this year's Cubs that I've seen as an example, there is a real benefit to breaking up a otherwise nonstop high power, high strikeout, high walk offensive attack with somebody who just forces pitchers to change their method of attack. And I've, I've seen it happen where just like inserting a Nico Horner or a Matt Duffy all of a sudden makes it the Cubs from a very hit and miss, very frustrating offense to watch to over the span of a month, one of the most consistent offenses in the game. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. The, the, the difference with DJ specifically is what made him more valuable, in my opinion, mm-hmm. when he came to New York was. He hits a 97 mile per hour line drive off the bat to right field. At Cruz Field, that's a single. Right. And singles are great, but they are singles. Mm-hmm. At Yankee Stadium, that's a home run or a double. Yeah. And the biggest outliers, you go to DJ LeMahieu's baseball reference page, the big outliers are home runs and isolated power when he came to New York because those line drives that were falling in for singles at Coors 
became home runs just over the wall or they bounced off the wall at Yankee Stadium. And so, yes, I completely agree that one of the best things a team can have is to offer different looks throughout the lineup. And I would also argue that perhaps, especially the Judge-Stanton combination, is more diverse than maybe people give it credit for because I do think they're very different hitters. But what made DJ valuable, not valuable, what made DJ an MVP level hitter was those balls leaving the ballpark. What has brought him back to being a perfectly serviceable, you know, three win second baseman is that for whatever reason, if it's he's getting older or the baseballs are funky or whatever, those balls are no longer home runs and doubles. They are now outs. That's that's hard to contend with, I think. I, I completely agree with you on the approach. And I think that there's a fun hypothetical universe in which, you know, DJ LeMahieu has moved to third in the Yankees order instead of leadoff. And as a pitcher, then you have to go judge DJ Stan because those are three very different looks as a pitcher. I think yes. that's an interesting hypothetical. Yeah. It's fascinating to me, too, the way you describe that, that, that. That might be like one of the only instances in baseball where you can specifically move one specific hitter out of course field to another ballpark to increase his power. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, it. absolutely. And this is something the Yankees have done. Like, this is why the Yankees got Luke Voigt, because right. he has this incredible ability to hit the ball in the air to right field specifically. And at Bush Stadium, that's moderately helpful. At Yankee Stadium, he leaves really no home runs. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's... Yeah. yeah, and that's what they've historically done uh, ever since the first Yankee Stadium was mm-hmm. they struck their park in a very specific way, and they know exactly the guys to find who take advantage of that specific characteristic of it. It's, it's yeah. fiendishly brilliant in, in a way. Um, and uh, so uh, last thing we'll talk about since, yeah, we are dealing with a very weird Yankees team after a series of kind of painful NLDS or ALDS and ALCS losses. And at what point do you start thinking about how close are we to worried about missing something with this championship window and seeing it close before an Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton team really finally fulfills their Yankee destiny to buy into it for a second? So in 2017, um, did the Cubs either, did they miss the playoffs in 2017 or were they out in the NLDS? They made it to the NLCS. They, they okay. beat the Nationals in five games, and then because they exhausted everything to win in that fifth game, the Dodgers just ran ran, okay. uh, ran over them. Then they missed the playoffs in 2018. Uh, 2018, they lost in the wild card. Uh, okay. That's, that's, yeah, okay, 2019 is when they missed. Because I'm trying to think of a specific post that I wrote, and I believe now it was in 2018 because I used the Cubs as a model because the Cubs were this young team, uh, lots of talent, lots of control, great farm system, they had uh, an owner that was willing to spend money to bring in free agents and to potentially keep some of these young players around. And they were going to be the best team of the next decade once they won that first World Series. And guess what? I'm sure you know. The Cubs have still been fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with them as a franchise. But they're not a dynasty. They're not a powerhouse. And I think that it would be fair for, especially if Chris Bryant leaves this winter, it would be fair for a Cubs fan to be a little bit disappointed that you only got one championship out of it. I know like the hundred year history, yada, 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 but like, if you look at the, the way that that team was talked about, you got one championship out of it, which is great, but it's fair to say, Hey, you know, we had all these players, you know, we only got their one. In 2018, I wrote a very similar piece about the New York Yankees that 2017 was 
playing with house money. They were better. They were, they arrived a year early, basically. Judge had an MVP season. Uh, Luis Severino had a Cy Young caliber season. And they lost an incredibly hard, hard-fought series to the Astros, who were the best team in baseball for a variety of reasons. Uh-huh. And, bang, bang. Um, and, and you could, but you could look at, you could do what the Cubs did and you say, Hey, they've got all this young talent. They've got a pretty good farm system. You know, Glaber Torres, we forget Glaber Torres was not on that team in 2017. Um, they've got an owner that's willing to spend money. Yeah. They, they got all this stuff. Well, that was really the high point of this current iteration of the New York Yankees. I mean, they go to the ALCS in 2019. True. Um, they lose to the same Houston Astros. Um, but like the 2017 team is really like the, the most optimistic that we could be mm-hmm. about this organization in, in sort of this, this era of Yankees baseball. And over the past two years, 2020 and 2021, they've been a roughly 500 team. I think they were like five, six games over 500 over that span. And they have had one excellent starting pitcher and a whole lot of nothing after him. And they have $40 million wrapped up in three relief pitchers who are all going to be 33 or older. And, you know, father time is undefeated. And Aaron Judge is a free agent after next season. And Gary Sanchez is a free agent after next season. And Garrett Cole is also getting older. Like, you're starting – the window is not close to the Yankees, and it would not surprise me if the Yankees won 95 games and won the division and made a real serious World Series run. It would not surprise me in the least. At the same time, it would not surprise me if it closed faster than we thought it was going to um, because those things tend to happen. And all it takes is, you know, a bad stretch in August or July, I guess, the end of June now, particularly if they don't win a lot of games against the Red Sox. So this weekend will be a really interesting weekend. Mm-hmm. And the Blue Jays are good. The Rays are good. The Blue Jays are younger and the Rays are younger. The Blue Jays have a better farm system, and the Rays have a better farm system, and the Blue Jays, in theory, can spend, more, can spend money, and the Red Sox can spend money. And all of a sudden, it's like, boy, this is a much, a much more different-looking situation than we thought it was going to be two years ago. And this is why, you know, yes, the Yankees went and got Garrett Cole, and that was a slam dunk, A+. Plus decision but they didn't get anybody after him and they've made moves and my criticism of brian cashman centers on the Corey kluber and jameson tyone moves which are very classic i can outthink the market kind of moves and he has a history of doing those kind of things and a lot of them have worked dj the has worked and luke boyt worked and Gio Rochelle sure as hell worked, mm-hmm. but a lot of them haven't. And I do not want to look back at this organization, particularly the 2017 season, which was a, still, I think, the most fun I've had as a baseball fan that didn't result in a championship, um, which is a very Yankee fan thing to say. It is the most um, thing to say. It is. It is. But I don't want to look back at that roster and look back at like Aaron Judge, who should have been the MVP in 2017, and Luis Severino, who was so good and so dynamic, and Masahiro Tanaka, who's so much fun. And, all these other players and said, wow, they got close though. Like that's not the way that fans want to look back on the team. That's not the way that the Yankees sell themselves mm-hmm. as, as behaving. 
Um, but it's certainly a possibility. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a strange, it's a strange team. It's a very strange season. And perhaps most like most disconcerting is that I'm, I'm not sure what level of organizational accountability there's going to be. Um, because I think that Brian Cashman is very entrenched in his job. And I, I'm not saying that he should be fired, but I, I think that should this season, should the season end the way that it is now, uh, where I don't believe the Yankees are in a playoff position um, and they wouldn't have made the playoffs in a normal year last year. Boy, heading into judges contract year and Sanchez's contract year and everybody else getting a year older, you look back and like, what have you got for this, for all of this talent and, and all of the promise that this organization showed. So uh, it's maybe we didn't end this on, on that high of a note. Um, <laughs> I, but, I kept reaching. Yeah. I, like you would think it shouldn't be hard with the Yankees, but uh, yeah, you're, you're kind of having that kind of decade that the Yankees are almost never have except for the eighties uh, where you have guys who are beloved by the fan base, who are definite franchise icons who just for whatever reason, haven't been able to run through the tape at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the reason for that, honestly, is partly because this is the era of the super team and there is no such thing as a dynasty in that era. Like any one of these five or six incredibly well-built franchises can win in a year because they're just so far above everybody else. It just happens to be whoever gets hottest or whoever cheats the most at the end sometimes. And so it's it, you're experiencing again, a very pre 2016 Cubs fan mentality of you fall in love with these guys. You have some really great memories, some great moments, but you just never get that final moment of joy at the end. It's always somebody else. And yeah, sure. it, it is, it is a very frustrating thing to, to experience. I, I will tell you that in, in hindsight, when you get removed from that team for by about five or 10 years, uh, if you still have good memories of some of the players and they're still treated as franchise icons, a lot of those hard memories tend to get softened a bit and you'll sure. back and go, yeah, man, like, you know, the 84 Cubs, that was Ryan Sandberg's year. That was the year that made me a fan. Like they're, they're my guys or the 89 Cubs for me. That was, that was, that was my team, even though they only made it to the NLCS or you look at the way that they're approaching the fan base wants Sammy Sosa to come back, even though that ended about as poorly as, as it can be, yeah. could. So, like, I would venture to guess that if, if they don't win, the worst fate that awaits, like, the Aaron Judge Yankees is that they become a bunch of Don Mattingly's in the fan base's eyes. And that's not the worst thing in the world. No, that's certainly not. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good way to think about it. I will, I will reconsider these thoughts 10 years from now yeah. and see if I feel better. You, you will be back on the podcast several times, but we'll definitely have you on in a decade and see if this actually plays out. But, uh yeah, I'm, I'm using Cub fan examples to cheer up a Yankee fan. What the fuck is going on in this world, Joshua Demert? Wow. Uh, do you have anything to plug while I still have you, have you here? Um, I have nothing really uh, to plug. It is Pride Month, um, so I would encourage. I mean, this is a this is a queer podcast, so maybe this isn't the right place to put it. Um, but I would really encourage people. Um, we all love parades, and we all love doing poppers on a dance floor. I get that. Um, especially if you are in Canada where we are not having pride parades and things like that mm -hmm. uh, right now. Um, look in your communities for uh, queer-led, queer-operated organizations. 
uh, call them, email them, tweet at them, ask them how you can help. Can you volunteer? Uh, can you donate money? Can you, uh, you know, what, whatever it is. There are a lot of very large organizations that do a lot of good for queer people, um, but there are a lot of gaps. And those gaps are often filled or at least attempted to be filled by organizations that do not have the resources or the adequate resources to do that job. Um, and especially, especially uh, trans-focused organizations. Um, trans people face a legislative state-sponsored threat uh, unlike anything they've ever really seen before. And um, it should be noted that on this podcast, uh, you know, it was, it was perhaps we talked about the Stonewall riots, which uh, a focal part of that was gender non-conforming people. And they have always been there in our community. They have always been leaders in our community. And as someone that is cis and white and male, um, I'm not under a lot of legislative threat. And the only way that I can sort of account for that is to help out the people that are. Um, so that's a very long-winded way of saying, find out the, the small local queer groups, uh, particularly ones that are helping trans people and particularly the ones that are helping trans kids and ask them what they need uh, to continue their mission. And that's, to me, that is what Pride is about. Um, yes, if I could be doing AML right now, I would be, I can't because we're in Canada and we're still locked down, um, but I can help out an organization uh, by donating money or time or doing something like that. So that would be, that would be my plug. Excellent. That, that is really, really well said. And off the top of my head, I know in Chicago, there's an organization called Brave Space Alliance that works mainly with the trans community and trans people of color on the South side. Uh, they were a big part of the Black Lives Matter movement last year. And uh, yeah, they're definitely an organization that you just described. Very worthy of your time, very worthy of any donations you can make. Uh, so yeah, Joshua Demert, You've been very worthy of a great discussion this past 45 minutes. It's been a pleasure, sir. Thank you, Ken.